It has often been said that there was nothing civil about the British civil wars. This was not a gentleman's war, fought in set-piece battles, in fields distant from civilian non-combatants, between dashing gentlemanly cavaliers and God-fearing roundheads. In reality, this was a terrible, all-encompassing conflict during which no community or family was untouched and which left an estimated 250,000 people dead, of whom more than half were non-combatants. The war's aftermath left no family untouched. Among the soldiers who survived, thousands suffered from terrible life-changing injuries and many families faced destitution, whilst thousands of widows struggled to care for their orphaned children and other family members. Generally, such stories of ordinary men and women are lost to history and their voices are rarely, if ever, heard. But the British Civil Wars were different. Responding to widespread hardship and a need to keep the army on its side, parliamentary governments created a welfare system which was subsequently maintained by the Crown after the restoration of the monarchy. The scheme supported injured veterans, their widows and families, a commitment that was not repeated until the Boer War. To obtain this relief, thousands of petitions from ordinary men and women were submitted to the authorities, each explaining how the conflict had directly or indirectly shaped their lives. Now these forgotten voices have been unlocked by researchers from the Civil War Petitions Project, funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, who have recorded, transcribed and analysed more than 4,000 petitions from veterans and their families, preserved in archives all over England and Wales. In this programme, the project's principal investigator, Andrew Hopper, professor in local and social history at the University of Oxford, tells publisher Mike Gibbs about some of these stories. Andy, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to talk to us about some of the key learnings of the Civil War Petitions Project. Can I begin by asking you to give us an idea of what was the English Civil War really like? Because many of us, I think, think about the big set-piece battles but I think your project and other research has revealed it was anything but civil. Yes, I think it was a war that affected every community in the British Isles. It divided families, it divided communities. It was not a war that people could ignore or opt out of, and everyone would have known people who had been killed or been lost in the wars. And... It was really quite a nasty war. There used to be historians who were prepared to argue that it was a kind of a civil conflict and that it was fought between gentlemen who obeyed the rules and there weren't many atrocities. But in recent years, historians have pointed to all the exceptions to that and that there were atrocities and that there were some quite nasty moments. And cumulatively, I think it's beginning to be recognised that the civil wars were far from civil. And can you describe what would be the impact of the civil war on towns and villages? Well, first of all, everyone would be paying a great deal more in taxation to support the war efforts of whichever side controlled their locality. 
Secondly, communities were required to furnish recruits for whichever side controlled their territory. And to begin with, that was often through volunteers. But once the war proved that it wasn't going to be over quickly, those volunteers became harder to find. And both sides introduced impressment. So people were being forced to serve, perhaps against their will, in the armies of both sides. So recruitment would have had an impact on local communities. And most feared and hated of all, the experience of free quarter. This was the experience of billeting soldiers in your household, paying for their upkeep and maintenance, on the vague promise that after the war you would somehow get your money back. You know, you'd be issued a worthless ticket saying that you would be able to reclaim this. And of course, those soldiers billeted in your household might well misbehave and you'd have very little recourse to discipline their behaviour. And so of all the civilian experiences of civil war, free quarter was the one that I think sparked most resentment and ill feeling. Civilians were also targets for being plundered. You know, they could have their property stolen and taken from them. They might have their horses requisitioned or their livestock taken away to feed the soldiers. So the civilian experience of the war was really paying for it. It's hard to point to any winners amongst the civilian population. And there was a tremendous ebb and flow. You say it's whoever was in control of the region. But presumably that changed over time. Yes, Both sides would conquer bits of each other's territory and then maybe the tide would turn the following year and the side would reconquer what they'd lost. So the ebb and flow of war made allegiance decisions for people very difficult because if you lived in the enemy quarters, as they were termed, if you lived in the area controlled by the enemy, the other side would treat you as a foe and would assume that you were disloyal to their war effort. And for those people living in frontier zones, it was even worse because, you know, quite often they would be forced into supplying the war efforts of both sides. If uh, there were nearby garrisons held for king and for parliament, you know, one day of the week, they'd have the royalists coming through, taking their contributions And a few days later, the parliamentarians would do the same. So you really wouldn't want to be living in a frontier zone during the conflict. The rival capitals were at London and Oxford, so much of the Thames Valley was being fought over. Likewise with the Severn Valley, the Royalists had a stronghold at Worcester, the parliamentarians at Gloucester, you know, the war ebb and flowed in the West Midland counties and the Severn Valley. In the north of England, the Royalists were based at Newcastle and York, and the Parliamentarians very much in eastern Lancashire and the West Riding of Yorkshire. So, yeah, all the counties of England were divided in some way, and even ultra-Royalist counties such as Cornwall, for example, or even Herefordshire, even places like that would have had minorities of parliamentarian activists within the county. So the experience of war really split every part of England and Wales. And in terms of fatalities and casualties, how many people were killed or died during this time? Well, a recent estimate from the historian Ian Gentles argues for about 540,000 total deaths 
in England, Wales, Ireland and Scotland. About 7% of the population of Britain and Ireland. And this is much, much larger than both the First World War and the Second World War, combined even, when we're talking about a percentage of the population. Of course, the 17th century population was much smaller then. So if we can imagine the impact and the trauma of the two world wars of the 20th century combined and then amplified, we can start to gain an appreciation of the impact of the civil wars on the 17th century population. And when we look at battle, I guess the sense is if you're wounded, you're unlikely to survive. Was that actually true? It would depend upon the nature of the wound and where one had been wounded. If you'd been struck with a sword or a pike or a blade of some kind in your arms or legs and you know, in the extremities of your body, then you would have a better chance of survival than if you'd been shot in the guts by a musket ball, for example. Soldiers at the time certainly feared injury from musket balls and cannonballs, I think far more than from bladed weapons. Because those wounds were more difficult to treat, it was hard to extract the musket balls, there was a greater danger of infection and fever and gangrene afterwards. So it was rarer to survive from a firearms injury. Although we've seen from the petitions project, many soldiers did. Um, There are some really eye-catching examples of soldiers. There's one soldier as late as 1699, who is brought before the justices at a quarter session and he points to the musket ball in his neck that he claims had been there for 55 years. He claimed to have been shot at the Battle of Marston Moor in 1644 and 55 years later he stood in the quarter sessions pointing to the ball in his neck, which was quite visible according to the petition that was submitted on his behalf. And what was the standard of medical care of the wounded? In the popular imagination, the standard was very low. Nowadays, people think that without antiseptics, without anaesthetics, without modern drugs and germ theory, one's chances of survival were virtually nil. Yet, when we look at the petitions and the certificates signed by surgeons, we see that large numbers did actually survive pretty horrific and horrendous wounds that we wouldn't have thought possible to survive in an age without modern medical treatments. So I think this invites us to reassess the skills of medical practitioners at the time and the surgeons and the physicians who treated the soldiers. And they learned a great deal on the job through the civil wars, because they had so many people to treat. And many of them based their treatments upon observation. They got a sense of what worked and what didn't work and adapted their practice accordingly. And I don't think we should underestimate those people and the numbers of lives that they were able to save. Every regiment would have had a surgeon and a surgeon's mate, whose job it was to treat the injured and the wounded, And both sides established permanent military hospitals for the first time. There were a number of these in and around Oxford for the Royalists. And in London, the parliamentarians established large hospitals at the Savoy Palace on the River Thames and also at Ely House. 
And there's been a lot of work done on the administration of those two London-based hospitals by Dr. Eric Gruber von Arney, who's gone through the records of those hospitals to show that they were really well-administered and really quite successful institutions. They were well-funded. Their diets the soldiers had in those hospitals were very good. And they were quite successful in treating the soldiers and that they were well-regulated and that many of the principles of modern medical care and nursing were established during the operation of those hospitals in 1640s London. And in terms of supporting both wounded soldiers and their families, the widows, what was Parliament's reaction Well, the casualties mounted up the longer the war went on, and there was an increasing realisation that in order to get men to enlist, a certain amount of care had to be offered, that soldiers had to be confident that they would be cared for if they were wounded, and that if their families would be looked after if they suffered or died in the war. And so the national pension scheme established by the Long Parliament included widows and orphans for the first time. Care was extended beyond the wounded soldier themselves. Very often these pensions weren't enough for those families to live on or to get by, but they were nevertheless worthwhile obtaining and could be a very useful contribution to a family's livelihood. It built on a pension scheme established by Elizabeth I in 1593, which allowed pensions to wounded soldiers and maimed soldiers who were no longer fit to return to their pre-war employments. So it built on and expanded that pension scheme and brought in war widows, women for the first time. In some ways, it was a remarkable achievement that any money was raised at all to fund this pension scheme. And whilst pensions rarely provided enough money for a full livelihood, in many places they may well have saved recipients from destitution. Do we know how many people over these years would have been supported by the scheme? Well, we have the names of tens of thousands of recipients of welfare on the Civil War Petitions website. And so certainly we know that the care may not have reached everyone and some people were refused. Some people were felt fit to work or not deserving of relief. But we do know that tens of thousands of individuals received welfare of some kind through this pension scheme, through this national scheme. Can you give us some examples from the group of wounded veterans? Some of the soldiers really suffered horrific wounds, wounds that one would not expect them to be able to survive from. Edward Bagshaw of Conisborough in the West Riding of Yorkshire, for example, had been so grievously wounded that um, he'd been kept alive through having a straw inserted into his head and nourishment poured through it. One is left wondering in many cases how people survived some of these horrific wounds. Gunshot wounds to the torso, one imagines, would have been quite difficult and rare to survive from. Although we do have quite a number of examples of that on the website. 
There's a royalist at the siege of Bradford who's wounded so badly in the torso that he has to wear a kind of iron frame around his chest in order to be able to sit or stand. So the capacity, I suppose, of the human body to endure these horrific wounds is really showcased in some examples. One of the most important groups of petitioners were clearly the widows. Can you give us some examples? Well, first of all, it was very difficult for the widows sometimes to actually prove that their husband was dead, particularly if their husband had gone abroad to fight for Parliament, for example, in Scotland or Ireland. There could be some uncertainty over whether they were dead or not, and they may need a certificate from their husband's commanding officer to prove that he was actually dead. And if their commanding officer was dead, then that could be especially difficult to obtain. We have one petition from Martha Emming of Coggeshall in Essex, who talks about how her husband was killed at the siege of York. And then one of her sons, who also fought for Parliament, was sent into Ireland, and he died too, leaving her with no means of support And she petitions the justices of the peace, saying that um, now she has no further means of support. She's past the age at which she can labour for her living. And she'd not been dependent upon the community up until now. And she finished her petition by reminding the justices of their duty to offer her some yearly relief which she wrote, uh, which hath formerly been granted for and towards the help and succour of distressed widows in that regard. So although actually that was probably written for her by a scribe, by a legally trained individual, it nevertheless ended in quite an assertive way, reminding the magistrates of their duty under the parliamentary ordinance to ensure that she was properly relieved and looked after. But not all of these cases were that straightforward. Yes, that's right. So petitioners would have to be very careful to ensure that their narrative in their petition entitled them to relief under the provisions of the ordinance or or later the act after the restoration. And so they would have to show that they fought on the correct side. So up until 1660, one needed to be a parliamentarian in order to secure relief. After 1660, one needed to be a royalist. And what's more, a royalist who had always been loyal and never changed sides. So when Grace Battishill petitioned the magistrates and justices of the peace in Devon, her narrative specified that her husband had been hanged for his loyalty to Charles I of blessed memory. But a little closer investigation into her case revealed that her husband was a royalist officer, hanged by the parliamentarians in Plymouth, but he wasn't hanged for being a royalist. He was hanged because he had changed sides. So he'd started out as a parliamentarian and then changed sides and gone over to the enemy. And this then, under the laws and ordinances of war at the time, when he was recaptured, made it lawful for his former comrades to have him executed. He was tried by a council of war and hanged. But of course, Grace couldn't have that part of the narrative in her petition 
because it would have disqualified her from relief. So she had to hope that the magistrates and the people at the quarter sessions in 1662, when she brought her case forward, had forgotten this inconvenient bit of detail of her Civil War history. And she was successful. She was rewarded with a gratuity. So either the magistrates had forgotten or they turned a blind eye because they considered that she was a very deserving case. And in some cases, whole communities of widows applied. Yes, that's right. So many of the parliamentarian widows of Plymouth, of course, Plymouth was a town that had been held for Parliament throughout the Civil War and besieged many, many times by the Royalists who dominated much of the Southwest region during the Civil Wars. Plymouth's parliamentarian widows banded together and submitted a group petition to the justices at the quarter sessions. And after the Restoration, things changed dramatically because now it was the Royalists who were in power. What happened to the petitioners, particularly the veterans of the parliamentary armies, after the Restoration? Well, after 1662, it became unlawful for a parliamentarian soldier or widow to hold a pension or to receive military welfare from the county. And so those ones, where they were known, were gradually removed from the pension lists and they would have been reliant upon other means of welfare thereafter, maybe parish relief. Uh, maybe they would have fallen onto the poor rate in a similar way to how the Royalist soldiers would have had to have been looked after during the 1650s when they hadn't been allowed to petition for pensions because they'd served on the wrong side. So many parliamentarians would have lost their pensions. Their pensions would have been reallocated to new royalist claimants. And those parliamentarian soldiers and widows who tried to hold on and tried to keep collecting their pensions, if they were found out, could be sent to prison if they were unable to repay those pensions. So we come to a situation where the memories of the Civil War really mattered and you know, one wanted one's reputation and one's local credit with one's neighbours to be enough to look after one's future. You know, one didn't want to be denounced by a neighbour and then face prison for having been a pensioner. Looking back at the Petitions Project as a whole, what do you think it tells us about the long-term consequences of the civil war in Britain? I think what it shows really clearly is that wars do not end when a treaty is signed or the last battle is fought. The consequences of those wars live on, not just for a few years, not just for a few decades even, but actually generations afterwards. And we've been able to find pensioners in the 18th century claiming military welfare as a result of their losses and wounds and maims during the civil wars. So even 70 years on, there are still people in their 80s or 90s claiming pensions. And there would have been very visible reminders in local communities of the human impact and the costs of that conflict. Because in many cases, their wounds and, and disabilities would have been immediately obvious visually. And how does it reflect the changing attitudes of 
government, the authorities, to their responsibility for widows and veterans. Well, I think the Civil War period and the Republic thereafter was a key moment in the development of the notion that the state is responsible for the military that it sends into combat, that the state is responsible for the families of the soldiers as well as for the soldiers themselves, and that the state has an obligation to look after them. And we can see that reflected in the military covenant of today. Perhaps many people wouldn't realise that the origins of that military covenant can be traced back to the civil wars of the mid-17th century. And was that initiative maintained in the wars that followed the civil war? Well, the British monarchy thereafter did recognise a duty of care to its servicemen in that we can see developments such as the uh, Greenwich Hospital and the Chelsea Hospital for soldiers and sailors that come about. But those were institutions of care rather than a national pension scheme, rather than the kind of thing that operated during the civil wars. After the legislation of 1662 expired in 1679, there are really hardly any instances of royalist war widows receiving money through the pension scheme thereafter. And it's not until the Boer War, it's not until 1901, that war widows were entitled to claim relief from the state. So you might say there was an enormous backward step in progress on this if you're a woman or a war widow in a military family that uh, actually you would have had a better deal in the mid-17th century than you would have had in the 19th. For anyone listening who wants to explore this topic more, where should they go? Well, if you Google Civil War Petitions, you'll be directed towards our website and you can search it through all kinds of different ways. You can search by people, by place, by wound, by battle or event, and maybe you'll find one of your ancestors or or maybe you'll find someone from your local home community who claimed a pension during the Civil Wars. Andy, thank you so much for bridging the gap between all of those petitioners those many centuries ago and today. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk about the project, as always. Thank you for your interest. We hope you enjoyed this programme. Now explore the lives of more than 4,000 men and women who lived during the Civil Wars by going to the Civil War Petitions Project website civilwarpetitions.ac.uk See if you can discover one of your ancestors there and find out how communities in your area were affected by the conflict. To listen to the previous programme with Professor Hopper in which you can learn more about the project and hear other stories it has unlocked go to our website worldturnedupsidedown.co.uk where you can also subscribe to our free monthly newsletter The World Turned Upside Down and choose from our library of earlier programmes exploring everyday life during the British Civil Wars. And to learn more about this important time in British history, do visit the National Civil War Centre in Newark, Nottinghamshire and check out their website, nationalcivilwarcentre.com, for details of great educational programmes 
and super school visits. 